0: I started seeing that when I talked and advocated for people, it was different than other people doing it. I was really doing it from a place of I knew it was the right thing to do. It was really advocating for people who deserved what I was asking for.
1: I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women
2: who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team, to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started The Skim
1: from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch?
2: Today, we welcome Jennifer Justice to Skimmed from the Couch. As an entertainment exec and attorney, she spent her career advising some of the biggest names in music. You may have heard of some of her clients. They include Jay-Z and Beyonce. She has now started her own company, The Justice Department. We love the name. It's a female-focused legal and advisory firm dedicated to helping women achieve their business potential. Jennifer, we're excited to have you here. Welcome to Skim from
0: the Couch. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: I am obsessed with The Justice Department is the name. I'm so jealous. So first, let's just skim your resume for us.
0: Right. I'm from Washington State originally, and I came out to the East Coast to go to law school at Cornell. I went to University of Washington before that. And when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after college, I didn't really have any mentorship. So I looked on TV, lawyer, doctor, banker, et cetera, and decided to be a lawyer. After graduating from law school, however, and got into a big uh, Wall Street firm called Hughes Hubbard and Reed I was a litigator and realized that I didn't really have any connections to get clients. Who could I attract as clients? And I really had a passion for music. So I started looking into being an entertainment lawyer and started at a firm called Cotico Carol Guido and Groffman. I started working there. There was a very then unknown artist at that time named Jay-Z. I started working with him, building up, working with other artists from Mark Ronson and Outcast, Method Man, Red Man, etc. And then I helped Jay-Z start Rock Nation. I did that deal and went inside as the general counsel. Then I became the EVP doing all strategic marketing and business development. Jay-Z turned his hobbies into businesses and I was helping him and the other artists that were on the roster from Beyonce and Rihanna and Kanye and Haim and Santi Gold, etc. do the same. And then I went to Superfly as a president of corporate development, helping them build out their entertainment properties. And then I started the Justice Department.
1: There is so much there, and I cannot <laughs> no. wait to dig into all of this as we kind of lay the foundation here. What is something that is not on your LinkedIn or that bio you just gave that we should know?
0: Um, I don't love sushi.
1: <laughs> okay. okay. I, we will not get you sushi here. That That's works. Fine. Okay. Okay. I want to just go back a little bit. You're from Washington State.
0: Where exactly? I was born in a small town called Centralia, Washington. Okay. Is Is that Eastern Washington? No. It is most known for being the halfway point between Seattle and Portland on I-5. Okay.
1: Okay. Talk to us about your upbringing. What was your family situation?
0: Centralia is a very, you know, working class town. My family was like loggers or they owned little, you know, mom and pop grocery stores. And, you know, no one went to college. Everyone got married and had kids very early, like 16, 15, 17, like really early. And it was just kind of expected of you. No one really thought about going to college. But I started doing really well in school at a very young age. And, you know, I had teachers that were saying, you know, you should really think about... Moving on beyond what is expected of you here, and then my mom got remarried when I was in sixth grade, and on in ninth grade we moved to Eastern Washington to Yakima, Washington. It's a very kind of wealthy community, you know. So kids were going to college; they were going off to Stanford and Harvard, and you know, even you know UW, which is great school, but they were going off to college. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that now.
2: When we've met, you, you've talked about a lot about your mom mm-hmm. and the influence that she had on you. Mm-hmm. Tell us better.
0: You know, we didn't have a lot of money. So she had to be very crafty with how she raised us. She was in and out of some bad marriages. And it was me and my sister. And then she got remarried and we had, you know, a younger brother. So to figure out what to do with three kids on very limited money, how to feed us, how to get, you know, people to watch us, et cetera, you have to be very smart and creative with how you're taking care of your kids, yourself, and feeding us all.
1: Was your mom surprised that you wanted to go pursue getting out of Washington? Right.
0: I think so. Everybody was a little surprised. But they weren't at the same time. Because I was very gregarious and very smart and very like ambitious from a very young age. I could see myself in a place like New York City at a very young age. But it's also like a fear-based thing. It's like, what happens? Like, what happens if you fail? What happens if, you know, you go? Like, it's really scary because it's really the unknown. But from my perspective, I was like... The only thing that happens if I don't go is I'm still here. So what's the worst that can happen?
1: So you end up going to UW. You -hmm. end up going to law school, Mm -hmm. coming to New York. Mm -hmm. Walk us through what it was like to sort of be the kid, not from the city, Mm -hmm. coming into these corporate law firms. And it sounds like you were such a rising star growing up and in the schools that you were in. Did you... Did you all have that confidence that you were the star? Or
0: was there a moment where you're like, wow, everyone here is also really ambitious? You start noticing things. It's like you're the rising star. And then you get to UW, and you're like, oh, wait, there's other people other who stars. are really smart, yeah. you know? <laughs> and then you're like, OK, but I'm still kind of a star after four years. And then you get to Cornell, and like, oh, wait, there's not only stars, but there's people whose last names match the buildings, you know? Yeah. And you're like, OK, I can't compete with that, you know? And But nobody is the Justice Department. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No one had my last yep. name. Thank you, Carly. So you you start going, okay. Well, what makes me different, and how can I separate myself, and what is my star? Because it's different than the other people, regardless of how you were brought up. So it was scary, and you know, a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, should I be in this room? Which you know, when you have that, and you have that as women, and you have that just as a child, you have that for your entire life, and it's just something that I have to talk to myself constantly about.
1: When you look back at that time. Is there something that you remember where you're like, oh, my God, I didn't do that or I said that because of imposter syndrome?
0: I mean, there's so many things. A lot of time when I was in the music industry as a music attorney, I didn't really put myself more forward as myself. Versus, like, I was getting a lot of clients, but there was a lot of times before every phone call, I'd be like, oh, OK, now I got to psych myself up for this, you know?
2: I loved what you said about figuring out what it is about you that's Mm -hmm. different, regardless of how you grew up or your circumstances. What was that for you, and when did you start to figure that out?
0: You know, it takes a while. right? You're like, there's no one there telling you you're great and you deserve to be here. And I would see people react to me in a different way. And it took a long time. It took, look, it took some therapy. It took an executive coach, really, to be like, you have these patterns in your life. And I started seeing that when I talked and advocated for people. It was different than other people doing it. I was really doing it from a place of I knew it was the right thing to do. And even though there were financial benefits, it wasn't just like being an activist. It was really advocating for people who deserved what I was asking for. And almost getting a lot of that pushback on it, I was like, okay, I'm really on to something. Because if they're just going to capitulate, then I obviously wasn't asking for enough. And so it kind of drove me. And I knew that that thing was that I was really good at advocating and really good at marrying art and commerce.
2: When did you start getting into the world of musicians and entertainers?
0: So, I mean, even when I was in Seattle, I was hanging out in the grunge scene. You know, we didn't know the whole world was paying attention, even though all these bands had been signed and had albums out. It's small in comparison, you know, to New York. And so I could just identify with them. Most of them are from my background, you know, and they weren't college educated. All right, I want to jump into Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. Just lay some groundwork here. Where was Jay-Z in his career? How old was he roughly? He was about, he had just recorded The Hard Knock Life. It hadn't come out yet. And so he was probably, what, 28, 29? Okay. And he'd released Reasonable Doubt, Volume 1, and he was about to release Hard Knock Life.
1: So it's right before he
0: becomes a superstar. Yeah,
1: what was your first meeting with him like?
0: I had been a fan of Reasonable Doubt, which when I interviewed at Carol Guido and Groffin, they were like, how do you even know who he is? You know, because it's an amazing album, but at that point it hadn't sold as many copies as it has now. And then we had to go to a meeting at Def Jam, which was a tiny company at the time, and I met him for the first time walking in. So I'd only seen a picture of him, and I didn't realize how tall he was and how skinny he was. <laughs> Are you like Mr. Carter? It's nice to meet you. Or like Jay Z? No, he like leans over and yeah. like he introduces himself, and I was like, Oh, I'm your does new attorney. Does he say I'm Jay? What does he say? Yeah, I'm Jay, and mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I'm your new attorney. He's like, Oh, you're J J. You know, and that's how <laughs> we met.
1: Does he call you J J? Yeah. yeah, I love that.
0: Yeah, Jay, Jay,
1: my my good friend Jay. He is famous for being an incredible businessman. He is known to be astute at identifying business opportunities, mm-hmm. optimizing for them, and obviously doing really well and making yeah. money. How did you get him to trust you?
0: He knew that I was fighting for him. You know that really cared about what his assets were how he should be treated and i just saw really early on i mean hip-hop wasn't even on you know live telecast of the grammys at the time they didn't even have a billboard chart separate for it and he came out breaking all these records you know he just saw how much you know i fought for him and cared about making sure he got what he deserved i'm just so
2: fascinated what was your life like at this point were you going out with these Mm -hmm. guys every night all the time (laughs) All the time. How does that work when you're the lawyer going out with them? That would make me like very, very anxious.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, look, (laughs) there's just certain things you don't get involved with. I'm an entertainment attorney, right? So there's no company in the music industry that is open before 10 a.m. There's no reception. There's nobody's answering a phone before 10. And then a lot of shows are at night. So it just is, you know what I mean? And it's just the way that the business works. You know, there are a lot of us running around together all the time were in it and it was a lot of fun.
1: How old are you roughly at this time?
0: Mid-20s. So So you're
1: like a young kid. Yeah. But you're a superstar lawyer, becoming a superstar lawyer. How did you ensure that you were respected as a professional while also socializing with your clients? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to assume maybe not the most professional settings, (laughs) not in a (laughs) boardroom at night. How did you find that balance?
0: Well, I didn't, to be honest with you. I was just going along because all the guys were too, right? And I was like, Well, you know, it's fine. Everybody else is out. And then there was a shift, actually. And then I started to realize that one client in particular, not any of them that I've mentioned, and he's in a little bit of a different genre, saw me out late at night and was like, I don't like my lawyer being out late. And I was like, "Okay, but I was with your male lawyer and you didn't say Mm -hmm. anything about that. That's when I really started to see. Because again, I didn't have any mentorship. So I didn't know that women were treated differently in business. I didn't know there were glass ceilings. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, there's a double standard.
2: And what was your reaction
0: to that? At first I was like, oh my god, you're right. This is awful. And then I was like, wait a minute. No, this is not cool because I'm in the same room with other male attorneys, other managers, other, you know, accountants. This is the music industry. It's music entertainment law. We're not curing cancer, solving world world peace here. So it was very eye-opening to me.
2: When I think about some of the people that you've worked with, even early on, whether it's Mark Ronson and obviously Jay-Z back in the day Mm -hmm. and then, you know, to what he is today and Beyonce, specifically talking about those people, it's a mix of creatives who have strong business intuition. Mm -hmm. How do you think through when there is a creative idea that's super compelling, but the business around it just doesn't necessarily make sense?
0: That's the thing. It's like the creative and the business have to meet. And if they don't, then, you know, whoever it is of my clients, they have to make the decision, do they want to fund it? is this a nonprofit that you partner with a museum? You have to do the math and give them all the options. What could really be the outcome? Is it you paying for it? Is it finding a philanthropist to pay for it? Or are we turning this into a real business? And that's my job is helping them marry art and commerce.
1: What's your personality like as a lawyer? And I say that knowing we worked with lawyers who are very quiet. They take it all in and then you put them on the phone and it's like, oh my God, you're like a pit bull. Yeah. Obviously, there's like the reputation or stereotype of like a litigator. Where do you fall along that spectrum? I'm kind of
0: in between all of that, okay. but no one has ever referred to me as a wallflower. <laughs> <laughs> it's more <laughs> aggressive. I've been called a tiger. Are you a uh, yeller? I don't yell unless somebody starts to really disrespect me. Then I totally raise my voice. Certain men I, you talk to, and you're like, okay, like, they're like, stop yelling. I'm like, if you would listen to me, then maybe you could hear, you know? I don't quit.
1: Where does that come from? Is that from your upbringing? Where do you get that from?
0: I mean, there's something nature versus nurture. I was just born like that. I really found representing certain artists that it was like people would underestimate them. And it so it became very easy for me, and especially representing women. It became very easy for me to argue on their behalf and advocate on their behalf that they were literally being treated completely differently than A man. So it just came to me naturally.
2: I want to talk about your decision to become a mom. Mm -hmm. I think that it's something that a lot of our listeners think about you know, when's the best time? How do I make sure that I'm optimizing for different options? Mm -hmm. What's it going to do to my career? And you have. A different story.
0: Look, we just talked about this amazing career I had. You know, I was making money. I had every bag I needed, and it was, like, really great. But I was like, I came from nothing. I'm sitting in New York City, living in my great apartment in Tribeca with all these great bags. I'm not religious, but I was like, why me? How did I get out of this situation? How did I get into this situation, which is great. There's got to be more, right? So I, like, looked forward to my life in five years, and I was like, okay what else is there just making more money and getting more bags and having better vacations and then I was like there's got to be a better reason I was like I need to have kids you know I was so so hyper focused and a tunnel vision of like my career my career because I never wanted to go back to where I was from and then I was like wait what am I doing this for and so I was like I have to have kids but then it was like but I don't date men that I would want to have kids with (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I could write books about them but
2: and I yeah. would buy them. <laughs> the thought was not like, maybe I should date different men.
0: <laughs> I, I, it was kind of like a, a hard time to pivot, you know, yeah, it was yeah. like in my I late 30s, that. you know, how am I going to yeah. turn my brain into something else? And so I was like, I guess I got to do it on my own. And I just started looking into it. I looked into adoption and IVF and everything all at the same time. And I was going forward for with all paths at the same time. I was very quiet about it. I didn't tell anybody about it. Do you tell your family? No, I'd told nobody yeah. because I didn't want anybody to be, like, giving me doubt. When I make a decision, I just do it. And I don't ask for permission because when I had in the past, people were like, no, you can't do that. And I was like, you know what? I'm doing what I want to do. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. And so I just went forward. And I remember there was this woman who I was friends with. She needed IVF. She... I had him very quickly. So I was like, what's that doctor my friend wants to know? And I went to him. I'd gone to, like, Cornell, and they were like, you can't have kids by IVF by a blood test. And I was like, you don't know me, <laughs> you know? And then I went to this one doctor, and he was like, yeah, you can. And then, you know, we started, like, I I started with him in, like, January, and I was pregnant with Jack and Nico by July.
2: Wow. Mm-hmm. So you twins.
0: I have twins that are currently six years old, yes.
2: So you are about to have twins you're mm-hmm. at rock nation yes i am guessing that in the music industry there aren't a ton of female executives who are single moms who are about to have twins
0: no try <laughs> let me think none yes. <laughs> <laughs> i mean there weren't a lot of women that i knew at that time doing that i mean now you hear yes. about more of them but like as jack and nico progress in school they're going to be the first yeah. you know
2: what was that like from a career perspective
0: well, it was a little scary, but Jay-Z had just had blue, right? So, you know, we had other people in the, in the company that had small kids. And, you know, once you have them and you're like, oh, right, okay, this is, why, <laughs> this is why it's different. All of a sudden you're like, everything that you do is to make them healthy and happy. And so I was confident that they were going to be very supportive of me, which they absolutely were. I didn't anticipate a couple of things like baby brain. It's real. I made more mistakes after having them go- coming back after maternity leave than I'd ever made in my entire career. But you don't want to admit it, right? No one wants to talk about it because you can't be a woman. You're an executive. So I don't think enough is talked about that. Postpartum depression. I definitely had a portion of that. And so, you know, it's a lot on your body. It's crazy. You're literally like an all-you-can-eat buffet, like growing a human being. And then it comes out and you're like, oh, my growing God. Growing to a human yeah. being. And then all the hormones that are in and out of your body, they got to flush out of your body. And stuff. It's, it's crazy. So I didn't anticipate that. And then I didn't anticipate the guilt of leaving them. But like going, OK, here's this person that I've hired now that is basically raising my kids for the most part.
1: How long of a maternity leave did you take?
0: I only took two months. I mean, it was up to me. It was really stupid. They were like, whatever you need, you know. But when you're representing one person that needs that trust and privacy of that level, it was hard to have somebody else kind of come in. And then I was like part-time for another month. It was way too much. I never should have done that. But I survived.
2: (laughs) So you decide to leave Rock Nation. Mm -hmm. Your kids were about two and a half years old. You didn't have a plan at that point. no. Talk us through that point in your life. What were you thinking? I uh,
0: know, <laughs> seriously. So it was just like I had been there for, I'd been with Jay for 17 years at that point, and we had grown Rock Nation. It was amazing but i knew that there was something else i needed to do i'd spent a lot of time working you know with women in my spare time i'd represented them as a music attorney as you know when they were getting their executive employment agreements and i just wanted to like take a reset to go like okay i've been working a hundred percent like 40 hours a week at least and up to 70 80 since i was 14 years old i'd never been unemployed and had money in my life and i was like wait, what do I want? My kids are two and a half. They're about to start preschool. I want to know that every time I leave them, when I come back, that they understand that uh, mommy's leaving for purpose and passion and doing fulfilling work. And I just needed a reset. At first, I was like, yay. And then I was like, wait, is this thing on? Like my phone? It was like, (laughs) And then I was like, oh, my God, I got to get a job. You know, I got to do something. So what job did you get? Well, so then I went to Superfly. So I really was thinking, okay, I was thinking about starting the Justice Department, but I really wanted to focus on women, and I don't think women were really ready for it yet. Shockingly, only four years ago, women were still like, what do you mean we're treated differently, you know? And it really wasn't until, like, Gretchen Carlson and the Me Too movement they started to. You know, I'd been talking to this company already. I met them when Jay-Z headlined Bonnaroo, Superfly. They were had raised some money, and they wanted to expand, you know, really, in the corporate development space and think about how they could use their capabilities to to grow and, you know, it was still in New York, still tangentially related to the music industry. So my network worked and I became the president. And that was a really great transition kind of phase.
1: In that moment, like that, that's a huge job. Mm-hmm. Did you have any insecurity or awareness of like where you still had a skills gap? Like, yeah. What was, what was the learning curve for you?
0: Well, yeah, then I went in and I was like, wait a minute do I know what I'm doing you know what I mean because it's like I was on autopilot forever and I was really really good and I could do my job in my sleep basically I mean obviously there was a ton of challenges and like it was a very challenging job but I knew the lane and now it's like oh my god I don't know the players what if I don't know what I'm doing and the partners there were just really open you know so it was very they were very supportive and that was very helpful. You know i i had to go through it and be like okay can i do this wait yes i can you know and just try to like think for the first time in a very long time outside the box of like what would i do if jay-z had asked me to start a new business but it was a lot of imposter syndrome like going on in my head for sure
2: before we talk about your decision to start your own mm-hmm. business with with the justice department i want to go back to that moment that you just spoke about which was you left Rock Nation. You don't have a job. It's before Superfly and your phone goes silent Mm -hmm. because I think about our day to day, how often I'm on just texting, emailing like you can't keep up. Right. Right. Yeah. Compounded with the fact that when you turn on the TV or watch the Grammys, that was your world. Yeah. Did you have withdrawal?
0: (laughs) I mean, honestly, no. It was more like, okay, I needed this quiet. Mm-hmm. I knew this was the right thing for me and for my growth as a just an executive and human being and as a mom and a friend and all of the above. So I didn't. And people were reaching out like, hey, what do you want to do? Like, let's talk about this. And, and then because so many people reached out in the very beginning about that and nothing was clicking, I was like, I need a moment. And I need to, like, just take a step back.
2: And the reason why I want to go back to that is I feel like you know, you hear so much about glorifying being busy, mm-hmm. and I think we all have the moment in our daily lives where we're like, "Oh man, I wish that I wasn't so busy," or "I wish that all the yeah. noise would stop." But actually imagining what that is like yeah. I think is really scary
0: yeah it is and I mean you would not believe how I'd fill a day I would like ooh, I have a hole in my cashmere sweater let me drive up to 57th <laughs> Street so yeah you make yourself busy there's a lot of working out I'd be sitting on the couch while the dog walker came to get my dog I was like what is going <laughs> on <here?">
2: okay <laughs> let's talk so... about
1: starting the Justice yes. Department yes. walk us through this what made you want to be a founder
0: so it wasn't really sitting there going, oh, I want to be a founder. I was just like, what am I really good at? And what is my passion? And what has not changed? Like, I just saw a wide open gap. When I was at Superfly, I loved it. But then I was like, you know, I was still doing things on the side. I was the chairwoman of WE. You know, I was joined the board of Annenberg Inclusion Initiative about female equality and empowerment. And... I was still giving all this advice to women, you know, in their executive contracts, et cetera, and like how to get equal pay. And I realized that I was making money for men by day and trying to overthrow the patriarchy at night. And I like needed to walk the walk. And I had been asked by a few women and been talking to a few different women about like perhaps coming in and being the CEO or president of a female-founded company, and it sounded really great, but I was like, but I feel like I have more to give. I feel like there's more experience that I can share. And I just saw that the wage gap was staying the same or only getting bigger, and I was like, okay, how can I help this? I have advocated for an underserved population for a really long time. Now, the underserved population happens to be women, even though we're 50% of the population. Nothing was changing. I knew I had an experience that could really help them and helping advocate for them. And so it just kind of clicked one day. I was like, this is what I need to do. This has to be my next step, is to work with all female talent, regardless if that's a female founder, female brand, an executive still in a patriarchal system, or any kind of talent, and advocate, negotiate their best business deals and like help manage and advise them, and getting toward equality, financial equality to men cuz that's how we're going to make a change. What's
1: the number one mistake you see women make at the
0: negotiating table? Negotiating a for themselves, not
1: hiring people to do
0: it. I mean, most people don't have the means to
1: either don't have the means to hire somebody to do it or in their industry might not be the norm
0: or appropriate. Exactly. To do it. Yes. You can't do that. You can't you can't play good cop and bad cop at the same time. So if you
1: don't have the means or it's not the norm in your workplace, what advice do you have for our listeners of don't make this mistake negotiating.
0: Don't ever offer the first thing, and don't negotiate against yourself let them come to you. You never know what they're going to, you know, if you don't feel like you understand it, go, you give me the offer.
1: Somebody asked, like a friend asked me for advice today. They got a job offer and the company said, this is our best and final offer. Mm -hmm. And they asked me, they're like, do I still push? What's your advice in that situation?
0: Yes. You still push (laughs) because do you really want to go to a place that's like, this is my best and final offer. And if you ask me another question, then you can't come here because that's what exactly they're going to be like when you work for them. Look, I understand that's a very like privileged kind of you know, situation, but I, I'm, I'm representing women in like C-suite you know, things because I really do believe that when women have more money and equal to men, trickle down economics will actually work, and it's going to trickle down to all women.
2: What you said about women hiring people to negotiate mm-hmm. for them I think is really interesting. Do you think that is a tactic that anyone should use, or you think women specifically need that buffer?
0: I think men do it all day long, of course. They absolutely need it. Women pay a lot of money to get their hair done, their nails done, and childcare. Why is it in business that you think you got to be like, oh, I can do this all myself? That's what men have been doing since the dawn of time. They were bred to do it. My six-year-old son is around other, you know, young boys, their dads are all in finance. He's starting to hear terms and understand and understand team and how you help each other. I want a system where women graduate from college and they reach out to their mom network instead of their college roommate dad network. And we can do that. It's just educating women on like, A, you deserve to have representation. Because that's one thing, right? Like women are often like, oh, I don't I can't afford a financial advisor. It's like, how much money do you need? Or like, I can't afford a, a lawyer. It's like, well, well, figure that out. You know, you're going into a situation where you're getting money. I can figure out how to extract more money. You need somebody to advocate on your behalf. So I have two clients who just sold their company, and it was a really big deal. I represented Pierre and Christine in Refinery, and they've said, like, I didn't Refinery29 yeah, for our listeners. You know, I didn't even know that there were people that could advocate for me on my behalf and fight that hard. You know, I didn't even know it was possible. And... Of course it is, you know? It's like so necessary for you to get that person that can get past, you past your imposter syndrome and like, do I deserve it, you know? Because what you deserve is not even what you think that you need, right? It's like, I'm fine with $200,000 a year. It's like, okay, but the guy next to you makes four hundred, So you need to get four hundred because if you don't get that, then the girl behind you doesn't get it either. And we need to educate women to like, know your worth, you know, add, like, don't just ask for free advice all the time, like, or give free advice all the time. Like, if somebody keeps asking you, get an advisory percentage, you know, get on the board of that. Start really creating your financial worth, because that is going to be where we move the needle. And how I can get a lot of these women to, to start thinking differently, especially if they have kids. I'm like, you don't represent that company. You represent your kid, okay? Like, I represent I Jack that. and Nico. If you're working for a company, it's like that's that's who you're working for. And get yourself out of that space. And so if you can't really afford an advocate, then then that's who your voice is that comes in.
2: That's that's a great piece of advice. And I feel I've, very motivated. I've never there. thought about it that way. But <laughs> that actually is a simple switch that I think yeah, yeah. can go a long way. I
1: love that. All right, we're going to move to our favorite segment right now, oh. the lightning round. Are you
2: ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay. First job. Dairy Queen. Worst job? Dairy queen. (laughs) (laughs) Can you skim your nighttime routine?
0: Come home, hopefully see the kids, convince my son to go back to bed after two times of waking up, sit on the couch, pretend I'm watching a Netflix show while working, and then... Pretend like I'm not working while in my bed and lying to everybody about it the next day.
2: What's the last Netflix show you pretend to to watch while working?
0: Well, this one I actually did watch was just Cheer.
2: What's your biggest vice?
0: Tortilla chips and potato chips. And wine.
2: (laughs) Is Beyonce
1: everything I want her to be?
0: Yes, she is. Oh, my
1: God. What is something about Jay and Beyonce we should know?
0: They're just normal, beautiful couple that love each other and, like, wake up every day. Who's your favorite artist? Dolly Parton oh I love that what's your shameless plug oh my god what the Justice Department I mean hire us yeah
1: (laughs) love it Jennifer you, or JJ I'm gonna call you now yes thank you so much thank you thank you hi everyone we're trying something new during this time of economic
2: uncertainty we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female founded companies We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. I'm Amy
3: Young. I am the owner and founder of A Rented Tribe, which is an upcycling indigenous women-owned business. We're located here in New Mexico doing a lot of great work on our ancestral lands. I'm also Diné, which means I'm Navajo. It was after a 35-year career in in the um, apparel business where I just didn't feel like it was where I wanted to be. The current state of the business wasn't something that resonated with my soul. I had also given birth to my daughter and was a young mom and just decided that I wanted to do things differently. A lot of the uh, indigenous culture, actually, we look at what The impact of each decision is six or seven or eight generations after us. So it's actually just being socially conscious, conscious of Mother Earth. So I actually started just using vintage, found objects that were already here on the planet and finding ways just to reimagine them, really solely focusing on the upcycle process. How has COVID-19 affected Arenda Tribe? You know, we're a small business, but we certainly felt the impact, you know, in our, our sales over the last month. But it gave me this ability to refocus and really get down to the heart of what I love doing, which is the reason I moved back to New Mexico was being of service to my tribe. So even though things got quite quiet on one side of things, that quietness allowed me to refocus and pivot into really just starting on funding, on aid. So we quickly built a fundraising platform where we could bring immediate aid, either through auction or sale of items that are solely built for 100% of the proceeds, going to critical aid to Navajo Nation. We are really just facing the peak of COVID in an area completely unprepared for that, whether it be the hospitals, the way the infrastructure is set up. So it's been a unique problem to look at, but certainly something as an entrepreneur and past business exec that I could come up with some really exciting solutions for them. So some of those things have been quick turn manufacturing for masks and everything entailed in making sure our Indian health services have the supplies they need. And also really looking at the food because food was something that needed to be delivered. So we're working with uh, major food vendors in the non-perishable area. It was always the path of getting me to this point where I could be of service and I could help my community through this other life I had before. The name of my fund is Spread Love, Shine Light. Pretty much all the channels for that are on our Instagram, which route to our website, where you can give either to Spread Light, Shine Love. We're working with Indigenous Impact Rapid Response Initiative, which is also a great option for donation, but really finding any way we can to deliver aid on a very quick basis. Our website, which is tribe.com it's O-R-E-N-D-A, Tribe. You can find everything you need there regarding donations, how you can help. We even have an online auction. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then,
1: subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start
2: your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the... SKIMM.com. Two M's for a little something extra.